Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us for another episode of the Finance for Students podcast. I'm Gavin Chang. And I'm Matthias Rui. Uh, and our guest today is Jeremy Schneider. Mr. Schneider, could you give us a little bit of background about yourself? Hi, guys. Uh, please don't call me Mr. Schneider. That makes me feel incredibly old. And I know from a high schooler's perspective, this 42-year-old man must seem like ancient, but I still feel like a kid, so please call me Jeremy. Uh, my background, uh, yeah, I was I went to college after high school and I studied computer science and then I was offered a job at Microsoft, um, full-time job, and I turned it down and instead decided to start my own company, which I grew for about 12 years. I sold at the age of 34 for just over $5 million. I quit my job two years later at the age of 36 and was retired and never needed to work again. And then after doing nothing for a year, I started a hobby, which became a side hustle, which became a business. Uh, called Personal Finance Club, where I basically help people learn about the basics of personal finance and investing. Uh, nice. Uh, do you think you could tell us a little bit about the company that you created? I think it's called RentLinks, if I'm correct. That is exactly correct. That's the company I started while I was finishing up college. Um, it was an internet company, and I was a computer programmer, and I had sold a website to my old landlord, in an attempt to make money as a 22 or 23 year old. Um, and then I found this consistent problem that many landlords had, which is um, if you're a renter, you can search for an apartment on a website like Zillow or Craigslist or apartments.com or rentals.com. But as a landlord, the problem is how do you post to all these different sites uh, and keep your ad up to date and track all the incoming phone calls and emails from renters. And so I made a website where you could post your apartment once, have it automatically advertised on like 50 different sites. If you add a photo or update the rent, all the different sites automatically update and then all the leads come back to you. And so that was what RentLinks was and I worked on it for like 12 years. How did you develop the company? Like how did you build it up from the ground? Uh, very slowly and incrementally and making lots of mistakes. Um, my college education was uh, computer programming, computer science. And so I knew the basics of how to build a website, but I didn't know how to build a business. And so I just made a lot of mistakes. I just like I said, I was called up my old landlord and convinced him to buy a website for me. Um, and then I tried to sell more landlord websites and I tried to, um, uh, you know, make a product they liked and, you know, just, it's a million little things making mistakes along the way. Um, I really had no idea what I was doing at the beginning. I literally was Googling like how to start a company. I was very concerned about, you know, how do you like declare to the world you're starting a company? Do you have to like fill out forms or something? And, how do you pay taxes? And, and the answer is like, that stuff isn't that hard. You, you know, you do have to send some forms to the government, then you open up a bank account in the company's name, and then you file taxes at the end of the year. And then the hard part is, you know, going out there in the world and convincing people to give you money, which took longer to figure out. Wow, that's really interesting. Um, do you think that you can, like, do you think that being a computer science major helped you build this business? Uh, for sure. I think that the best technology businesses almost without exception, are built by engineers. And so if you're a young person listening to this, um, I encourage you to consider a technical field in college like engineering uh, because engineers generally can learn the business stuff, but it's much harder for business people to learn the engineering stuff. And so if you go through the list of massive companies in technology, Google, founded by two engineers, Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg, engineer, Apple, engineer and you know Steve Wozniak's an engineer Steve Jobs is a technical-ish kind of guy um, Microsoft engineer Amazon do you guys know what Jeff Bezos's major was in college I'm not sure 
computer science or electrical electrical engineer or something like that. But he was an engineer too, and so um, you know, it's definitely much easier to to build a tech company if you deeply understand the technology rather than um, trying to learn it and ha- hoping other people will build your product. Mm-hmm. Uh, so then you said to go into some kind of engineering major, would you have one specific or two specific ones that you would recommend? Cause I know there's like software engineering, computer programming, computer science, like there's a large range in that field. I love anything engineering, even like mechanical engineering or chemical engineering or aerospace engineering, but I'm personally uh, a big fan of computer science and the, the ones you mentioned, computer science, computer programming, those are all kind of mean the same thing. Um, but the world we live in today is a world run by software. And, you know, when I was coming out of college a very long time ago, from your perspective, um, I thought that, you know, it was an amazing time to be a computer programmer. And it's even more true now. You know, my, my first job, God, this is such an old person thing to say, but my first job was um, the job offer was for $74,000 a year plus $15,000 bonus, which is still a great salary. But today, you know, today, if I got a job, I'd be making like $400,000 a year or something. Um, you know, so it's just like, it's, it's a great time of super high demand. And I don't think anyone really expects software people to be in less demand in our lifetimes. When making your decision to create your own company, did you ever like did you ever think that Microsoft could have been the better offer? Yes, in fact it probably was the better offer. Uh I was fueled by ignorance and distaste for corporate America. Um you know, I it wasn't really the decision for me wasn't really that I was so bold as to assume I could create a fantastic company. It was more like I just didn't want to work for a giant company because I didn't like being a cog in the machine. And uh, I maybe would have worked for a small company, but I didn't find one that wanted me to work for them. And so I just started one. Uh, And then you also have, uh, after your computer science, quite a bit of uh, experience in investing. So could you give us one or two rules or principles that you follow in investing in personal finance? Yes. I love talking about investing. Um, I have two rules of building wealth. Rule number one is to live below your means. So, you know, if you're a high school student listening to this, are your, are your listeners mostly high school students, do you think? Yeah. You're still, still finding your audience? Good. Well, if you're a high school student listening to this, the world of like, the world you live in is like full of messages coming at you all the time about like buying cars and Amazon and stuff and trips and, and uh, like festivals and, and credit cards and debt and borrowing money. But there's really a very simple truth to people who become super wealthy, which is they spend less money than they make. If you make half a million dollars a year, which is a ton of money, and you spend half a million dollars a year, which is very possible, some people do, at the end of the year, you have $0. 500000 minus $500,000 is zero. But if you make $60,000 a year, which is below the median household income in the U.S., and you spend $40,000 a year, which is, you know, in a lot of places in the U.S., you can live comfortably on that. So you're spending $20,000 per year less than you make. That $20,000 a year, if you invest it over time, becomes millions of dollars. And that takes me to rule number two. Rule number one, again, is live below your means. And rule number two is invest early and often. With that money you don't spend, you invest. And so broke people, like the broke 
mentality is just to like get money, spend money. If you get $1,000, you think in your head, how am I going to spend this $1,000? If you get $10,000, you break it up. How am I going to spend $10,000? The rich mentality is growing money. If you get $10,000, you think, how am I going to double this money? How am I going to triple this money? How am I going to invest this money for the long term to like safely and reliably grow and blossom? The goal being not to live a life of, you know, pauper or poorness your whole life or the goal is to like have your money become so large that you don't need to work anymore and you become what's called financially independent and you can live off of your investments forever that's a nice place to be so when you were talking about how you want to invest as young as possible and as much as you can is there one particular investment that you would recommend over others yes my favorite way to invest is what's called an index fund and an index fund is simply a bunch of stocks and a stock is when you buy a piece of a company and so you could buy a company like apple which is a great company if you buy one share of apple stock you'd own like a tiny tiny fraction of the entire company but that share of the stock that you own that that means you're an owner of apple entitles you to a few things one you get dividend payments while you hold it so just for owning that share of stock and the way you buy these stocks by the way is like by going to a stock website like Fidelity, Schwab, uh, Vanguard, and clicking buy, and then you type in Apple's symbol, and then you buy their stock. Um, but only a stock, while you own it, entitles you to the dividends, which means you get paid just as long as you own it. And it also entitles you to sell that stock at a later date. And so, for example, if we fast forward 10 years in the future, and Apple has grown even further, and they've made headway in foreign countries, and they've released the i car that now they're selling cars or whatever and it's worth more money then you can sell it share later and so by buying stock and holding it you get the dividends and you can sell it more for later that's how you build wealth but buying individual stocks is troublesome because uh we don't know which stocks to buy the stock market is very efficient which means just because we think apple's good everybody else thinks apple's good too and so the price gets set based on what everybody thinks which means it's very very hard to pick and choose stocks and reliably do better than the rest of the stocks. So what do you do? You simply buy all the stocks. You buy every single stock. It sounds crazy when it was first introduced in the 1970s by Jack Bogle, the founder of Vanguard. People thought he was crazy, but it turns out that he was right because now index funds have been proven over and over and over. Index fund, by the way, is when you buy every stock, if I didn't mention that. But index funds have been proven over and over and over to basically outperform the vast majority of investors because they're low fee, they guarantee simplicity, they guarantee your fair share of all market growth. And so when I invest, I'm a multimillionaire. I put all my money into index funds. Uh, do you have a certain index fund that you like the most or a couple that you would uh, recommend for someone that wants to go invest in an index fund after this? That's a good question. So which index fund? So an index is simply a list of stocks. And there's a few different important lists of stocks. One is a list of U.S. stocks. And so one index fund you could buy is the total U.S. stock market. Um, and, you know, a ticker symbol for that would be VTI. V is in Victor, T is in Tango, I is in India. And VTI is the total U.S. stock market index uh, ETF. You could also buy, you know, the U.S., as you may be aware, is not the only country on the planet. And there are lots of amazing companies that are not based in the U.S., like, uh, you know, Nintendo and Volkswagen and Alibaba and Nestle and all these companies that have their headquarters outside of the U.S. So you can buy a index that files non-U.S. stocks like VXUS, which is the total non-U.S. stock market index fund. And then there's 
an even simpler way to invest, which kind of combines all stuff into one called a target date index fund, which is based on your age, essentially. And so each major brokerage, Vanguard, Fidelity, Schwab, offers these, and it's based on your age. But there's too many ticker symbols to list. But you can Google it, or you can go to my website, or you can just buy VTI and VXUS, and that would be great, too. So I saw on your, on your website how you had two courses, and one of them was investing in index funds. Are there any just like tips that you'd recommend when investing in index funds, such as a certain time to invest or anything like that? Yes, I have lots of tips on that. And almost all the tips boil down to don't try to be tricky. The trickier you get, the worse you're likely to do. People who, and the world is full of people spouting bad speculation at you. Recession's coming, inflation's gonna do this, the market's expected to do this, it's about to drop, it's about to do that, you should buy this, you should buy that. But the more you listen to that, that nonsense speculation, and people love speculating, but if you look historically at how good speculation is, it's terrible. You know, someone pointed to me an article recently, it's like, oh, the stock, market's ex the stock market's expected to do this this year. I was like, but what did that say last year? It was wrong, and the year before that, it was wrong. And so what you can do is basically invest early and often. You buy those ETFs, you buy those index funds, you just hold them, you invest as soon as you get the money, and you just don't touch it. Set it and forget it, like that infomercial says. And the less you do, the more money you'll make. It's very counterintuitive to most things in life. You know, for example, if you're trying to be a great athlete, the more you do, the better you'll be. The more training you do, the more video you do, the more visualization you do, the more nutrition you do, the better you'll do. Both stock market. It's put the money in and leave it alone because the, it's, it's like a bar of soap. The more you touch it, the smaller it's going to get. And so don't try to invest at a certain time. Just invest when you get the money. Invest early and often. Buy and hold for years and years and years. You guys are in high school, so you have this like massive advantage of, of youth because you have many, many years for it to double. So for example, let's say you came across $10,000. And you guys, let's say you're 18. I'm going to do some quick math for you. And let's say you want to retire when you're 65. I know retirement sounds like a crazy thing, but 65 minus 18 is 47 years. And in the stock market, money doubles about once every seven years. So 47 divided by seven is about seven. So it can double seven times. So listen to this. 10,000 doubling seven times turns into 20,000, 40,000, 80,000, 160,000, 300 and $20,640,000. So basically $10,000 today is north of half a million dollars at retirement. That's just from one little, you know, a little investment, $10,000 is a bunch of money. And obviously if you're in high school, you probably don't have $10,000. But the point is you're very young and the massive power of growth is, is so big when you're young. And so when you do get that money, just put it in, leave it alone, don't touch it for years. You'll be great. Yeah, that's a, that's a crazy kind of example. I didn't think of it like it would be that much growth. Yeah. Um, and also, I read that uh, when you were starting your company, you invested weekly into a Roth IRA. Can you explain a little bit about what that is? Yes. So an index fund is an investment. And inside of an index fund is stocks. So there's the, these layers of investing that are often confusing to people. So at the core is stocks, but the stocks have to go in something like in a container. And that's the index fund. So you can buy them all at once. But the index fund has to go inside of something. And that's the account. And so there are multiple types of accounts. The normal type of account is called a brokerage account. And so if you will go to like Robinhood and you op click open account, what it's doing is it's opening up a brokerage account for you, which is great because then you can buy an index fund and it contains stocks and then there's your, there's your layers of investing. Um, but the problem with a regular brokerage account is 
it's not really a problem, but like the, the not optimal part of the regular brokerage account is you have to pay taxes on the growth. So let's say you got $10,000 I mentioned to you turned into $640,000. That would be incredible. But the U.S. federal government would say, hey, you just made $630,000. You know, almost all of that money is growth. And they're going to say, give us 15 to 20% of that money. And so your 640 is going to turn to like, you know, 480 or whatever it is. Um, and so that's not bad. You know, I still, still personally would gladly turn 10,000 into 500,000, but I would prefer it to be all 640,000. And so if you put that, if you, when you go click open an account on a website, if you click open Roth IRA instead of brokerage account, then that money that goes in there stays tax-free forever. So when you withdraw the money, you get it 100% tax-free. There are some catches, like you can only put in $6,000 per year. It's not for billionaires to like stash all their money. It's for regular people to like invest over time. You also can't put money in unless you have earned income. So if you guys don't have a job right now, you can't do it. But if you do get a job, you can do it and your parents can even maybe help you with that. Uh, but yeah, that's what a Roth IRA is. It's just a type of account that gives you tax-free growth forever endorsed by the federal government to basically encourage people to invest so that there's not a bunch of broke old people in the country, which is not good, not a good look for any nation. So seeing as we're young and most of our audience is pretty young, do you think that the concept of fire is a viable option or do you think it's more of just uh, something that only a certain group of people can do? Uh, the only people that can do fire, by the way, fire stands for financial independence, retire early. It's the concept that uh, retirement's not an age. I think when we talk about retirement, everyone just says, oh, when you're 65, you get to retire. But you don't. Just yesterday, I was watching TikTok. You guys are on the tickety talks, right? Yeah, um, yeah. These kids, I'm on TikTok. I have 100,000 followers on TikTok. I'm a big TikToker, not that big. But I was watching TikTok and some 72-year-old woman was delivering Domino's pizza and like slipped and fell on some porch and just like pizza went flying and her hip was hurt or whatever. And I was like, you know why she's delivering pizzas at 72 years old? Because she has to. And that sucks. And because nothing magically happens at 65. And I know if you're in high school, you're like, like, I give a show, it's going to happen between 65. Can I swear on this? If don't tell your teacher, you can just bleep that out or something. But um, like, like, I could care less what happens between 65 and 72. But but the thing is, like, it doesn't, you don't, just like it doesn't automatically happen at 65. You don't have to wait until you're 65 either. So what I was about to say is the only people who can fire who can retire early are people who have a job. If you don't have a job, well, I don't know what to tell you. You got to work. But here's a, here's a little stat. Let's say you get a job out of college and it makes $80,000 a year and you decide to be a psychopath and you're going to live on half of your take-home pay. Whatever your paycheck is, half you're going to invest, half you're going to spend. 15 years later, you can never work again if you want. So your entire working career, instead of being like 22 to 65 or 72 beyond like the, the pizza delivering grandma, it could be 15 years. And 15 years is short. I know when you're 15 years old, it seems like you've been alive a long time, but when you're 30, you're like, damn, that last 15 went, in a, went by in a blink of an eye. Um, so yeah, I think it's totally viable. I think it's something people should be thinking about. I think that, you know, sometimes I hear about people who are making hundreds of thousands of dollars and they lost their job and they're like going to work as a garbage man or something. And I'm like, where'd all that money go? I'm like, my God, give yourself a break. You know, give yourself some buffer and save and invest some of that money so you're not a slave to the uh, 
the income that you get every single month, but you're actually building wealth for yourself and you can become financially independent and not do things you don't want to do, like go to a job if you don't want to. I never thought of inve- or retirement like that. Yeah, retire when you're 30. Highly recommended. Yeah, do you think that, like, is there a certain, I know there's not an age where you can retire, but is there a certain level of wealth where you can comfortably retire? Yes, there is, and it's 25 times your annual spending. And so this is, this is based on a study that looked at the historical growth of the stock and bonds market and historical inflation. And it basically said, if you get up to, like, let's say you spend $50,000 a year to live. 50,000 times 25 is 1.25 billion. If you get 1.25 million bucks invested, then you can take out your 50,000 every year and even increase it for inflation to make sure you don't have to like keep living more frugally. And that 1.25 million is basically very, very likely to never go to zero. Of course, we don't know the future, like an asteroid could hit the earth tomorrow. And then the, the, you know, the 4% rule that I just described would, would not apply anymore. Um, but generally, historically speaking, based on the growth of stocks and bonds, that's going to work. And so when you want to retire, you look at how much you spend every year, you multiply it by 25. If you can get that much invested, then you can retire. Yeah. And so since it's the rule is based on how much you spend, do you have any tips for uh, keeping spending low? Yes. Uh, frugality is, you know, not a sexy topic for high schoolers. Maybe you want to like drive Ferraris and go on crazy trips. And so do I. Uh, you know, my net worth is about 4.5 million and I do nice things sometimes. But I think that what's most valuable in life is freedom and choices and options. And I could go buy a bunch of Ferraris. I don't know how many Ferraris I could buy. What are they? 400 grand. I could buy 10 Ferraris and line them up outside my house. Then I'd have to have zero. Then I have to worry about these Ferraris getting damaged and where I'm going to park them and, and how I'm going to pay insurance on them. And, you know, you know that stuff kind of, you become a, a victim of that stuff or a slave to that stuff. And so I prefer to use my money on freedom. Whatever I want, I travel. Whatever I want, I work or don't work. Um, and so when you are thinking about how you spend your money, don't become a slave to your stuff. Expensive cars just cause more expensive. Higher gas, higher maintenance, higher insurance, higher depreciation costs. Houses, more expensive. And those those are your two big. What's how you get around transportation and homes. And those are where people get really burned. You know, if if you want to go to Starbucks every once in a while, who cares? I know like there's like this like cliche in the personal finance world. It's like, Oh, if you caught your Starbucks once a day, you'd make a million dollars. You know, like usually Starbucks isn't what's, what's crashing people's finances. It's the big ones. It's like your house and your car. And so as long as you can live simply live modestly, don't buy a big house too soon. Don't rent a big apartment too soon get roommates, buy used car, don't borrow money for cars. Um, you know, the average new car payment in the U S is I think like $550. If you can just save half of that, if you can, if you can get around for 250 bucks a month, instead of 550, you're easily a millionaire just from the difference in your car cost. Yet still people are always buying new cars on loans. So don't do that. And so I guess there has to be kind of a balance between living frugally uh, but then not also just saving all of your money and just never spending it. Um, and so how do you find the right balance? Like, is there some sort of like percentage of your income or something like that? Yeah, you know, it's a good point, which is the point of money, in my opinion, is not to die with the most in your bank account and declare victory. It's to use it as a tool to maximize happiness in life. And I think most people 
misuse money by spending and borrowing too much early in their life. And so, you know, when you're in your 20s, you spend every penny you get, you go into a bunch of debt, you go into student loan, car loan, you know, credit card loans. And then when you wake up when you're 30 or 40 and you're like, oh my gosh, I've been spending above my means and now I'm stressed out. Uh, I, um, you know, have to work harder, have to work longer. I'm worried about where money's going to be. I'm not happy. I'm worried about taxes. I'm worried about losing my job. I'm worried about, you know, all the things that can like make your life less happy have happened. And so while people think, oh, if I go on this trip, I'll be so bad. By the way, I'm not knocking trips. I like trips. But like when you go on a trip, how about like an inexpensive motel instead of a fancy hotel? Or well, how about you uh, fly coach instead of first class or whatever it is? Um, you can you can go on trips simply. But on the flip side, you could go too extreme the other way. You could say, all right, I'm going to live on 10% of my income and just live like a pauper and never go enjoy a restaurant and never go enjoy a trip and never go enjoy anything. And, you know, the answer is, generally a balance, you know, I think that, but I think that the answer becomes more clear when you can see the implications, right? So when you understand what you can do with saving money, what you can do with investing money, and then you can say, okay, now I'm going to make a trade-off. I understand just today on Instagram, we posted that if you spend $2,000 on a Beyonce ticket today, it's going to cause you to work a year extra, you know, at the end of your career. Like, is it, you know, what's more important, like seeing Beyonce, for one night or like a year of paid time off. And you know, I don't know, like that's not my, that's not my answer to give, um, you know, $2,000 is a lot of money. Like maybe it might be worth a week of work. And if you can get like a $200 ticket or whatever it is. Um, but I think once you understand the value of, of investing and becoming financially independent, then you can make those informed choices. And, and it's not for me to say, you know, what you value in life. In your personal opinion, do you think money can buy happiness? I have three theories on money and happiness. Theory number one, uh, and th these are all you know borrowed from other people, but there's there's like a study that says once you make over seventy thousand dollars per year, money does not make you any happier. Below that, you know, if you don't know how you're going to pay the electrical bill, you're worried about buying groceries, you're worried about making rent. For sure, getting above that will make you happier. Like being in poverty is extremely sad place to be. So money can definitely buy happiness up until, you know, at least like a middle class living. Um, but then after that, it does not, you know, driving a Ferrari versus driving a Mazda. You know, if you ever see someone driving a Ferrari and you think that that person has found like true inner happiness, like you're probably wrong. They're probably miserable. Um, which leads me to uh, uh, theory number two, which is it makes you 10% happier. Wherever you are in life, it makes you exactly 10% happier. So if you're really, really depressed and then you have a bunch of fancy clothes and fancy houses and stuff, like you're probably not super happy. You know, those things don't add to your internal happiness, but it might make you like 10% happier. You know, like it's like a little bit, if you're like have a really crappy dish, dishwasher or a really nice dishwasher or no dishwasher and you do have a dishwasher, you know, that can probably make you 10% happier, but still like doesn't like replace strong relationships and friendships and feeling of progress. And then my third theory is that this is my favorite one. It makes you an amplified version of who you already were. So if you know someone who is like goes to McDonald's and is like a dick to the cashier, and then you give him a million dollars, he's going to be a dick to his staff. He's going to be a dick to his employees, you know? Um, but if you go to, if you know someone who's like very, very poor, but always tries to help people need, and then, then they become rich, they're going to become like magnanimous and philanthropic and be even more helpful. And so um, I don't think money buys happiness, but I do think that it probably makes you a uh, magnified version of who you already were. Uh, and I guess going back to kind of your choice to not go to your job at Microsoft, 
Uh, do you think that people exiting college should try to form their own startup if, uh, or do you think they should try to find a job? Usually, no, I'd say. Um, I think there's this misconception around startups that they're all started by young people. Um, when in fact, I'm a little bit of the exception. Most of the successful businesses in the world are started by like 30 and 40 somethings because they have a decade or two of invaluable industry experience, learning the ins and outs of companies. Um, if I had gone to Microsoft for 10 years and become an expert in a certain space there and then went and started a company, you know, maybe instead of selling for 5 million, I could have sold it for 500 million, you know, who knows? Um, you know, there's like, obviously the, the counter examples like Mark Zuckerberg who started it out of college, but most well, you know, most big businesses are started by 30 and 40 somethings. That's just the reality of the world. And so, you know, I wouldn't suggest you do it like it's some great idea, but of course, I don't know. I feel like anyone who, anyone who's going to do it is going to do it not because they heard it on a podcast. So if you're listening to this podcast, no, but if you're going to do it anyway, then yeah, go for it. Why not? You know, you only, you only live once. So maybe, maybe you're the next Mark Zuckerberg, but, but it's hard. It's hard to start a company. Uh, I think that's all of our questions. So unless you have any final comments or something to leave the viewers with. Thanks for having me guys. Uh, yeah, I'll leave the, um, I'll leave you with the, my two rules for building wealth. It's what I always say. If you want to become wealthy, you have to do these two things. Rule number one, live below your means. And rule number two, invest early and often. Thanks for having me. All right, thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks guys.